I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What's up, everybody? It's your coach. Welcome back to the podcast. The number one positivity, positivity show on the internet right now. Today's show sponsored once again buy positivity use it you can either use it or you lose it so use it use positivity super pumped about today's guest found out about this guy saw the work he was doing on the golf field also saw what he was doing off the golf field incredibly blessed great story great talent great heart I hope he hits the social media thing again because he uh, has a ton of talent. He's out there in the beautiful state of Georgia, a place called The Kingdom, where obviously TaylorMade is popping. They're the number one club place, number one clubs available now. My man here is the director of this place. It's out there in Georgia, probably an hour away, for, I think, from Atlanta. Heaven. Heaven for golfers, heaven for parents of golfers. He fits the players. He has a staff that does it, fits the kids. Shafts, woods, everything on point. Such a wealth of knowledge. Privilege to have on my man, Sean Kane, the director, El Director, PGA Director of Instruction at the Kingdom. Reynolds Lake. Got nothing but love for you guys. You guys are going to enjoy this one. Here we go. Three, two, one. Sean, and we're on. First question, dude. First question for a guy like you. Do you ever get bored of golf? First question. <laughs> um, not really. Um, it's, a, it's a very good balance that I'm able to keep. I don't, I don't, I mean, I, when I play competitively, I don't really call it competitively. I just, it's a social event for me that, that happens to be in a competitive situation. Um, the only, the only competition I really have is when I'm playing with, uh, with, with some of my buddies up in Nashville. So, and uh, we get some good wolf games going up there, but uh, no, I get a good balance between coaching and, and just sort of playing for leisure on my own. So I'm a member at a at a course in uh in Athens where I live, so I get to go out there and play in the member games. So it's a it's a good balance. Sean, when we first spoke, man, I I always felt that you had a great balance of being a golf guy, being an instructor, and being a normal guy at the same time. Like not too much of anything, you know. Have you always had that kind of balance in your life, or is this something new? Yeah, you know. I just, I I've, I came from a very different background. Like no one in my family plays golf. I grew up in a racing family. So my dad raced motorcycles. Uh, my uncle was in NASCAR for 18 years and my grandfather built race engines for 20 something years. So I grew up in a garage 
And my great uncle uh, happened to buy a golf course and my dad would actually go play in the poker games down there. And so I would go with him and sit and eat popcorn and Snickers bars and watch golf on TV. And uh, when I turned 13, I just one day went and played with a couple of buddies. And um, what I've learned about myself over the years is I am as a high a quotient of a visual learner as you can get. And so the only golf I'd ever watched were the leaders on TV on Saturdays and Sundays. So that's basically how I learned to play. I never really saw anybody make a bad golf swing before I ever made my first one. So people always just said I had a natural swing. And then um, about, I, I basically ended up quitting football, baseball and basketball uh, my 10th grade year and just focused solely on golf, mainly because the coaches told me they weren't gonna let me play not because I couldn't contribute, but because they knew they were all really, really fa good family friends as well. And I basically just told my parents said, you know, golf has come so natural to him. He needs to go in that direction. So that's how it sort of switched. Sean, why didn't you do the race car thing? Because you weren't a speed kind of guy. Oh, no, I am. My mom wouldn't let me. Yeah. <laughs> You yep. have any brothers, any sisters? I got a younger sister. So you're the guy. So they, did, your mom sat with you and said, "There's or oh, your dad said, no way this dude's driving. Oh, my dad. My dad wanted it. Yeah. My dad wanted it because, so I was an oops baby. So when, when I was born, he had to quit racing motorcycles. And he was sort of at the, sort of the pinnacle of about to assign a big contract and, um, obviously this was back in the early seventies when Supercross was really starting to take off. Uh -huh. And so it sort of derailed. So I think he wanted to, you know, when he had a son, he's like, okay, I'm going to sort of live vicariously through him if he's into it. And I really got into go-kart racing and, um, I was racing, uh, you know, super modifieds that, you know, at 11, 12, it run 80 miles an hour. So yeah, I've never been afraid of speed at all. Um, I, I guess it's just sort of born into me. Sean, what's a nuke? You said a nukes baby. What is that? No, an oops baby. Oops baby. Oops. Oh, yeah, I yeah. get I it. I get plan. it. <laughs> how, how old was your dad when he had you? 21. Oh my God, dude. And my mom was 20. Wow. So that gets me in a very interesting place, right? I am, I am huge on father, son, parents relationship, man. We either, what I tell people is we either imitate our fathers or we're completely the opposite, man. Having a dad so young and what looks like on paper, very cool. Was he a good guy to you, man? Were you, are you guys, is he like your hero? You guys the same? Talk to me about that. Yeah, so that's a deep question. Um, and I'll expand upon it a little bit. So I do what the way that you look at those relationships, I come face to face with that all the time. I volunteer at my church for a thing that is basically called starting point. And it's people that are just exploratory and, you know, wanting to figure out faith or anything like that from, from lots of different angles. And one of the things you see that is extremely common that walks into that room is a damaged uh, father figure 
um, because it just never really sets the tone. And I did not have that. My parents are as good as gold. Um, they always have been. And my dad's relationship with his father was a little like strained. And I think that gave him even more of an effort to make sure that that never happened. And it wasn't bad, but I think it was enough. Um, and he's a middle child as well. So he's got that whole thing going on. Yeah, um, yeah of course. So I, so I think it was enough to, to spurn him into, you know, just making sure that, you know, I'm everything. I mean, when my dad quit racing, you know, I mean, he, he came from a completely different day. Like he never went to high school except maybe like 15, 20 Fridays a year. He would leave on Thursday night, haul his bikes up and race in Virginia and then race in Tennessee and then come back on like Sunday afternoon, go to school for four days and do it again. You know, wow. it's back in the day where you could get away with that, you know, small town, Georgia, and you knew all the teachers and, you know, they let you take tests early and, and all that. So when he quit that, he didn't really have the only other skills he had were working with his hands. So he's a really good welder and carpenter. And so he went in and started working three jobs oh um, to support God. our family because he didn't want me to grow up in daycare. So he didn't want my mom to work. So my mom stayed at home and raised me. Um, and then he worked three jobs. And then that's why, you know, when he, he and I always hung out like sort of fishing and, you know, whatever he, whenever he could get a little bit of time away. And, you know, so that's what sort of lent into me going to like poker games and stuff with him. He actually, used, he was in the military as well. So we used to go play at the VF, he would go play cards at the VFW too. So. Nice dude. What a, yeah. see, cause you see that because that's a tough decision for a, you deal now with a lot of 21 year olds. Mm. very few 21 year olds can show that kind of maturity to stop that kind of life with a contract to give that up, to go to do three carpenter kind of jobs to take yeah. care of a kid. You know, that's, that's a big deal, man. Yeah. He, he's uh he's, he's the most amazing man I've ever known. I'll tell you what really shaped my entire life is, um, when my mom wouldn't let me race, I was like, okay, well, and this was like in the BMX sort of like freestyle era. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go race BMX. If you won't let me race anything. Cause my mom was like, you can't race anything with a motor with a motor. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so she's like, um, I was like, well, okay, well, I'm going to go buy, you know, I'm going to go get me. I was cutting yards in the neighborhood and I was like, I'm going to go save up my money and buy me a BMX bike. And I'm going to start racing that you know, and then I sort of got into like freestyle and started to do that. So I went to this like freestyle, like competition. And I was like, super, super upset, you know, when I was like coming back home. And at this same time, like a week later, uh, I pitched in the championship game of the all-stars in baseball. Wow. And so, um, and I got like lit up because they had scouted me. My dad didn't like, this is another thing. He wanted to protect me. So all he would let me throw is a fastball and a changeup. He would let me throw curves. And so um, by protecting me of that, anyway, I got lit up in, in the game or whatever. So I was obviously down and like, I'll never forget. So we were like riding on the way home and we stopped at a, 
convenience store. And before we got out, he turned around and he looked at me and he said, I want you to understand. And my mom was in the front seat and my little sister was in the back seat with me. And he, he goes, I want you to understand that effort is the only thing that matters in this family. He goes, our love for you has nothing to do with your performance. Dude, that is awesome. Look, you see, you see that right there? You see what that says? Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Those are the only two things that matter, right? Look yeah. how, look at the irony of life, Sean. So my upbringing's the complete reverse of yours. So my dad, we're Cuban immigrants. We we're born in Cuba. My dad's the youngest of 15 kids. His dad died when he was real young. So when he came here, my dad almost vicariously lived his dreams through me, through baseball. Having never played it, but seeing it on TV and understanding it and kind of having the Cuban blood. So my dad prepared me for everything in life, Sean, except to deal with him. So he would beat the crap out of me when I would do wrong. And the irony is, you know how your dad protected you? My dad did the complete opposite. I developed a, when I was 13, I said like the strikeout record and I just, we won first place, but I absolutely destroyed my arm because I started throwing a slider and I would tell my dad before I said, listen, I, I can't move my arm. I'm dying here. And he would instill so much fear in me that the adrenaline would kick in and I would just pitch, 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 but I completely blew up my elbow and my rides home were completely the opposite of yours, bro. And I was the youngest. So up like until college, my rides home were literally my dad destroying me, telling me, listen, my good friend of mine is a carpenter. I'm going to, he does roofs. I'm going to have you get a job with him because you're not going to be a baseball player. My mom telling me, all you worried about is your looks and the way you look and whatever. <laughs> and my poor sister who was older and was dragged through this was like, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. The whole, this is me, the whole ride home, man. But as I look at the big picture of life now and doing what I do now, going through all that, I tell people that what's your dad's name? Mike. Mike. It's better to be Mike than to be Hector senior mm -hmm. because you can't control what Sean's going to do. You can control effort and attitude and putting those values, man being. So you were, is Athens real close to Atlanta? Yeah. It's an hour East. So you must be a Braves, are you a Braves fan? Well, yeah, I mean, somewhat. So I grew up Red Sox and Celtics because of my mom's dad. Got um, it, got it, got it. We also pull for the Braves as well, but not for the Hawks and the Falcons. So, but, and there was never a conflict because the Braves were- A full. National League, yeah, and it's National League. And how old yeah. are you, Sean? I am uh, 47. So we're almost the same age. I'm 42, so you were- real young when the Braves pitching and all that, that was, that was out of control. The Braves of the nineties. Yeah. What position did you play in baseball? How good were you in baseball? Talk to me about that. So I played, I was pitcher, catcher, center fielder, and third base, just okay. on where they moved me around and, and what we were, you know, what we were doing. Um, our coach was incredible. Um, he had played in the major leagues for like eight years. 
And so he knew, and, and so he would move us around. Obviously he like scouted the other teams and everything like that. And so he would move us around, um, you know, based on whatever was happening, but what ended up happening to me. So I've had two rotator cuff surgeries and a labrum. Oh, and so wow. my right. Um, and it wasn't him. I was only with that guy for two years. And what he didn't know was everything that like led before that. But the other problem was, was that I played quarterback on the, you know, in the rec league football. So I was constantly using my arm. So if I wasn't pitching, I was catching, you know, or then playing hot corner on third or then center field, you know, so I just basically wore my arm out. And so the orthopedic that did my surgery, which was when I was 38, he said, it's like you took this and, and put, put your uh, rotator cuff between two rocks and over a 20-year period just wore it completely and frayed it. Wow, man. Did that, he is, your, your labrum was, was basically gradually tearing the entire time as well because it, it didn't have the support structure. While you were doing that, who introduced you to golf? Um, well, like I said, my great uncle owned that course and I would go down there while my dad was, was playing poker. And so I watched golf on TV and, uh, another thing that was funny. So my great uncle like cut a putter down. And so there was a little putting green, like out, like the side door of like where they were playing. And I would go out there and like for two years, I never hit a, like never made a full swing, never hit a shot. All I did was putt. Here again, like I said before, I'm a visual learner. I didn't know that back then, but like all I was seeing were the best people in the world. Right. So like putting is the best part of my game. Um, it's the part I teach it extremely simplified. A lot of people don't like it as simple as I teach it, but I just believe the greatest putters that I've ever seen, whether it was in college or you know now on tour watching, and for everything that I've also witnessed the last 25 years, um, even before I started coaching on tour, just having so many friends that were out there and playing and, and being around it, the best guys have never, they, they've never changed. They never changed their putter. They never changed their approach, you know, and you see someone change that has been really good for a while and they change and then all of a sudden they like fall off right. and then they try to like, that you know i feel like that's what happened with tiger i mean you know he's so private we don't really know but um you know when he was messing around with a couple of different putters and things like that and yeah. all of a sudden like wasn't making putts anymore and then you know he got back so so that's how it sort of started like i said i went out one day and my buddies were going to play golf that were on the golf team and they asked me if i wanted to go play and i was in ninth grade and i said sure and so I used one of my buddies' sets of clubs, and um, the first round I ever played, I shot 103. And nice. It just came, like, super natural to me. But I know why, because that all I did was watch. And then after that, I would tape it. Like, once I sort of got into it, because my parents couldn't afford, like, instruction or anything, so – I would like tape it on the VCR and then rewatch it back and then look at what they were doing and then like look in the mirror, you know, and just, and just like check positions. But I remember like early on, like, I remember it being like, like, you don't even like know what you're doing, but like, it looks right. 
you know, and like now I understand it because from a very early age, my brain was processing all of that visually and just knew how to enact it. That's awesome. Isn't that crazy how now that you work with kids that the probably 95% of kids that you work with can afford it and can afford you as an instructor and the whole thing. But the common denominator for you being successful is that you couldn't afford it and you had to go above and beyond to learn it and stuff like that. Do you find the kids now that are privileged that can do that? Do they, especially of a young age, do you see them watching golf, invested like that in golf, or is it more play, lesson, and leave? Uh, it's, I would say it's like 50-50. 50-50, huh? Some of them are too involved. They really? watch, like They watch too much YouTube. It's like, you know, they're just, you know, I've got this one kid that will come into a lesson, and I literally spend the first 15 minutes every time basically dismantling all of these things that he has seen or heard that are false. Right. right, 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 right. <laughs> Dude, that, that, so, that is, that is crazy. Yeah. So, you know, um, it, it, it goes both ways. I, I've got, I've got a couple of kids that I teach that are like serious dual sport athletes. Like there's a girl that's probably one of the top point guards in the whole state. Nice. And, and she's, she's won a couple of SJGTs like Southeastern juniors. Um, but like she battles the, the balance, you know, right. and she's in ninth grade. And I told her, I was like, you know, I, I want you to play both as long as you can. But what she's starting to see already is, is that in golf, she can't stay as far ahead in golf as she can in basketball with the, with the split. You know, and I told her, I said, it's a lot harder game, you know, as different, different variables you're trying to manage. Yeah. You know? So how good were you as a player, man? So it's funny. Um, so started really playing my ninth grade summer going into 10th. And like, like I said, I picked it up. So the basketball, baseball and football coaches all played golf. And so I don't really, I mean, it's been so long ago. I don't really remember exactly how this happened, but at some point somebody told the coaches said, you got to go play with like Sean. Like I wasn't even on the team. Like I was still playing for them. And so they're like, you got to go, you got to go play. And like, I went and played with them. I'll never forget. I went and played with them on a Sunday afternoon and I'd only been playing like, I don't know, about a year, a little over a year. And I like shot, like 74, 75. And everyone, they've all told me, said, you won't be on our teams next year. Like, we're not going to let you no matter like, we'll, we're, you have to go this route. Wow. Like we've never seen anyone just like, you don't even know what you're doing. Like they're like, you know, you hit good shots today, but you don't know how to judge anything. Cause you, you're so new to everything. Like you cause see back then, like I didn't practice or anything because my dad, his bike, when my mom wouldn't really let me race, he started building race cars. And then for a lot of the drivers in our area. And so I was at the track on Friday and Saturday nights with him, you know, with him because it was, you know, we were going to watch and see, you know, how the guys that, that he had built their cars, you know, were doing. So we, we, and we was all over the Southeast. So it was like Phoenix city, city, Alabama, 
up to Westminster, South Carolina and around. And so I wasn't, you know, and, and I also loved all the other sports. I went to every football and basketball and most of the baseball games that we had in nice. school, you know, so I never really, I, I wasn't, I practiced golf like during golf season. And then my senior year, I had a huge growth spurt and I filled out and all of a sudden my body naturally moves like Justin Thomas, but I'm six one, one ninety-five. Nice. So I was hitting it like I'll never forget, like and it, it just came out of nowhere. And like I said, I had no idea what I was doing. My mom and dad weren't golfers or anything, so they I didn't have, really have any direction that way. Um, and we, we, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know, you know, <laughs> and so. I remember going to a tournament my senior year and I was playing with two guys that had, that had signed major D1 scholarships out of the Atlanta area. And on the very first hole, um, uh, I hit it out there and I didn't know, you know, I didn't know any different. And I'm like 40 past both of them. Wow. And like we're walking down the fairway and I can't say what the one kid said, but like he was, he was sort of a, you know, a privileged, you know, not used to getting beat or anything like that. And he looked over at me and he goes, who are you? But he didn't use those words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then in, after high school, did you play at all in college? I did. So I went to D2 school. So, yeah. So like my, my senior year, like I played in a couple of events. I won this like, uh, event that was a very prestigious like high school event where they nice. invited the best teams and so then I started getting scholarship offers and you know it just it, it like I had no to be honest with you like what I was going to do I was going to go to a I was going to go to a local <clears throat> just like, um, trade school not even really a trade school it's sort of a trade school now but I was just going to go to a, a, a local, like it, it wasn't a JUCO because it was four years, but it was just a community college. Right. And I was just going to get my, um, I was going to get my core out of the way because I had heard that through all the racing channels that Clemson University was going to start a NASCAR engineering program within nice. their engineering department. And I wanted to be like a crew chief or a car chief. You know, yeah, and so yeah. that's what I was planning on doing. And then this like golf just came completely out of nowhere. What D2 school? Uh, it's called Shorter University in Rome, Georgia. Oh, in Georgia. Okay. And yeah. there you played three years, four years? I played four years. I graduated four years, played in four years, and then got out and got into the golf business immediately. Um, talk to me about that because I, I get so many, I get so many athletes now that I talk to. And I say, listen, you were taught when we we're young that sports is, you could only make it as a player. And if you don't make it as a player, that's it. But now with everything around the sport and all these things, whether you could be a broadcaster, you could be an influencer, you could make funny videos, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many avenues, right? Who got you in the business of golf? So my, uh, by this time, my dad had went to work for my grandfather who owned a tire dealership. And so 
at there when I was 16. So this was like about a year and a half after I um, started playing. Um, a guy that was the general manager at this big fancy resort they were opening up about 15 miles away. He saw me working and knew that because the high school coach had been out there to try to get us to be able to practice there right. for our team. And I guess he knew my name or whatever like that, or was talking to someone. And he basically said, you don't need to be out here like changing tires. Why don't you come work for me at the golf course? Nice, and so I went and started working for him and he and I worked together. He retired uh, a year after I came to Reynolds here. But he and I worked together for 24 years. And so wow. that's how that he got me into that. You know, my, I mean, my first job was at <coughs> our ultra private club, which was built to host a PGA tour event immediately. So, I mean, I was a sophomore in college and running the entire team with CBS sports to help broadcast the event because no one else knew the golf course because it was brand new as well as I did. So I almost had to go out and, and sort of train the people that were the field mics. I was like, Hey, you know, they're going to like hit it, you know, into here. And, you know, um, sort of, I had to sort of like walk them through because I'd played that, that course every day because I've been working there for a year and a half, but it wasn't open. Like it, it, they didn't open it up. They were selling memberships and like, it didn't open until four months before the tournament was hosted. Wow, so dude. That is that's how I got into all of that. And so I was around like the tour, like immediately. Did you, were you just doing business stuff like that? Were you teaching at the time? I didn't start teaching until, so here's a funny story, how all this came about. So I had the privilege of working there. Um, I was just really good at member relations. So I, without me, like I was, I wouldn't say I was unambitious, but I'm just a guy that's like, Hey, you know, you tell me to do this and I'm going to go do it. And like, so that's my job. And like, so I'm not really trying to think of, you know, move up the chain or do anything like that. But within a year and a half, I moved all the way up to first assistant. They just kept promoting me upwards, upwards, upwards. And then they moved me to the exclusive private club. And so um, there I took it on. My job was, is, you know, obviously I was a pretty good player. So, you know, that opened a lot of doors, you know, and then so from the membership, they liked that. So I'd go out there and play golf with them. And then when I became the head pro, I sort of thought my job was, was to run the club you know, play golf with the members, take them on trips, you know, just create a great environment for them to be able to enjoy their membership, you know, and we had a lot of good players there. So um, I just sort of used a lot of my influences and, you know, a, a lot of the friends that I had on tour would come out there and play and, and all that, which they loved. And, and, but at this time I didn't teach at all. That was my job was to run the club play with the members and create a great environment for them. And in 2007, I switched, I left the church system that I had grown up in and went to a non-denominational church. And about two weeks into being there, I volunteered and they made us do a spiritual gifts test. So they would know where to place us within the church of where we, where we would be able to serve the best. Right. And it came 
teaching was my number one gift. And the guy that was leading the whole thing, it was about 300 people in the room. That was they, they do a big, I'm still involved with this church today. They do a big, massive, like, you know, um, event once a year. And it was at this event. He stood up there and he said, hey, I'm just curious. He said, how many of you in this room have never taken a spiritual gifts test before? You just learned what yours were. And how many of you are not doing what your number one gift is in your vocation? And I, I'm just a person that I like, I was sitting on the second row because that's just the way I am. I'm like involved. Right. So I like raise my hand and, you know, so there's 300 people behind me and I don't know. And so nobody else raised their hand. He's like, oh, okay. He said, so what do you do? And I said, you know, I'm a golf professional. And I said, you know, and he said, well, what's your gift? And I said, well, teaching is number one. Exhortation is number two. And administration is three. What does and exhortation said, mean, Sean? Exhortation is basically... So this is the second part. Exhortation is basically being able to sympathize with someone and walk them through a situation that is not ideal. That's wow, a, that's, that's huge. Paraphrase. That's huge, man. So you look at teaching one, and then that's the second part. And then so anyway, he, I sat there and told him, and he said, so what do you do at this golf course? And I said, I told him what I thought my job was. And he said, yeah, it's easy. You don't even have to change job, jobs. You just need to start teaching and let somebody else do that. And so three weeks later is when I tore my rot rotator cuff and labrum hitting a ball out of a buried lie and a hazard. I mean, it was already messed up, but that was just like the final straw. So for three and a half years, I had back-to-back -back surgeries that were major like recovery. This was a full thickness tear on my right side. So didn't touch a club for 18 months. And in that, I said, you know what? Um, I need to figure out like what this teaching thing is. I feel like that, that God is sort of getting me to look in a different direction. And so I sort of went on a journey and said, you know, um, the only lesson I ever had messed me up and like why, and it was from a super high flight teacher back in the early nineties. And I said, you know, I need to sort of explore this and see. So I just went on a journey of like, what is truth? Like, what is the truth of, you know, where does it lie? What, what's false? What is it? And I mean, I read so many books, you know, and all that. And then I went to, three seminars and it completely changed my entire life. And so one of the seminars I went to was Mike Adams, who's down there um, sometimes in y'all's neck of the woods and sometimes up in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And it just made me look at everything completely different. And I knew sitting in that room that day, um, you know, I would definitely say that's, that's sort of the baseline of, of like my, philosophy but it's not I didn't really go a whole lot deeper into that and then I've I'm really good friends but also uh he works with all of my clients with uh Chad Cook at Players Performance Institute okay. in Atlanta and so I basically took all of the things that were in my head and all of the falsehoods that I thought that existed 
and then everything that that Mike had sort of crushed from that standpoint, which completely I didn't know how to put words into it because this was a whole new realm for me. But it made sense to me like immediately. And this is another thing that I've understood is so part of the, the gift of teaching is, is that you understand systems and processes and synchronization within those systems without really even knowing it. So that's what it is. I mean, that's really what the gift of teaching is, is that not only it's the way that you disseminate information, but it's the way you intake information as well. So it almost could be called the gift of teaching and learning. So when Mike went through the baseline of a lot of the things that I was looking at, I was like, that makes like so much sense because it closes all these gaps. And then I went and Chad and I talked over a lot of time, you know, lots of times just about, you know, the body. So when people ask me like, what do you teach? I tell them biomechanics, but it's not golf biomechanics. Cause I think that's been hijacked, um, you know, in not so good ways, you know, just like everything else, you know, that, that comes along from time to time, you know, an idea comes out and then there's, you know, there's a lot of people speaking into it. Yeah. yeah like in, in basically, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Like in baseball, what happened was probably, Man, maybe like six years ago or so when Josh Donaldson wins the MVP and he completely comes out and says, listen, you guys are we're doing this wrong. You were taught to swing a level swing. You don't do a level swing. You should swing up. And that really revolutionized baseball. And what people don't understand, I guess, that are outside the sport, that there's literally two waves of a sport. There's what the pros do and then what the coaches or instructors do because mm -hmm. you have it's easier to work with an instructor than become a pro obviously yeah. so you had i don't know if you saw this in your world with how you adapted but in the baseball world 90 of instructors were literally teaching kids to have a slight uppercut swing and let's literally try to hit home runs and and that's that you know which to a lot of people is a complete disaster because you, you don't have, especially as a kid, the understanding of that little, it's just a little bit of turning of the bat. It's this much, but if you go this much, then you're completely popping up and it's a, a complete nightmare, right? Did you notice that too in the golf world? Yeah, so the thing that I noticed <laughs> was there's several things that I noticed. It really wasn't so much technicality. It was the way of looking at it. I felt like, here's the thing that I felt immediately that I didn't really know how to put a context around because I had, I mean, I, at, at this point I had put in, let me see. So it was, so I put in 14 years wow. of just being a golf professional and never really looking at that. I mean, yeah, I would sit there and say, hey, yeah, your grip looks this, or, you know, you look that, but it was, there was never any like context or thought behind it. It was basically just, you know, trying to help, you know, a 20 handicapper, you know, not shank it or, you know, whatever. So when I really got into it, one of the things that really, really intrigued me 
that just came into my mind after reading all, like I just read everything I could get, even stuff that I knew probably wasn't right. I wanted to read it and be able to go in and like know how to like dismantle it. And so the overarching theme that I found was that, and I, and this is where I really work with Chad in talking about this. I feel like so much instruction pays attention to the club and not the body. It's like, Oh, well, the club is doing this and we got to get the club to do this. And it's like, you're, it's not that the club doesn't matter, but the body matters more. And if you get the body to move correctly, then the club will go where you want it to go, you know, and then you throw the fitting side into that. And then right. it's like, okay, now let's make sure your club, your body's moving well. Let's make sure your club is not hindering you in length, lie, weight, you know, and, and then that doesn't even get into, you know, shafts, you know, and how you can, you know, tweak that after that. So that was really for me, the tipping point. Um, and it was crazy. I was not ready for what was coming. <laughs> So, Sean, do you like better to be an instructor or you like doing what you were doing before? Oh, instructor by far. Yeah. It, you know, here's the way, here's the way I look at it. Um, like my life is, is great. I, 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 there's, there's nothing that I would change in it. I'm extremely blessed. I feel like I got to do that part, you know, and you know, God knew what was coming and then he prepared me. And then because I, I, I went, I was ready to give all of that up, you know, and then it was a, it was a firestorm. Um, you know, once I got into, you know, teaching and, and over that three and a half years and sort of once I developed, you know, my plan and, and came out, um, it, one of my, I, a guy that I was really good friends with on tour. He had gone through a couple of caddies within well, he got this one caddy and his caddy and I hit it off immediately. And he actually, our owner gave him a honorary membership at our course. And so he was out there all the time. So then his caddy become began to come out there. And so long story short, all of this was in the midst of me going through all of this. Wow. And so um, I told him one day, he and I, he just came out and he and I played and it was like 45 and wind was blowing like 15 miles an hour. And the golf course that I was at was really difficult. And he shot 68, I think. Wow. And I just sat there and told him, and I was looking at one thing. I said, I really believe if I change one thing in your swing and I was like, and it's this simple you'll go from caddying to playing on tour. And in seven months later, that's what happened. No way, man. And so it, it gave me, you know, and this always happens to me, the teacher, instructor, whatever you want to call it, gets too much credit and too much blame in a lot of situations, you know, for, for what is happening you know, out there. And in this situation, I would definitely say, because although my knowledge base was the same that it is now, I didn't have the experience. And without the experience, you don't really know how to, you know, walk through a lot of 
different situations. So I feel like I'm so much better now, not because of knowledge, but just because of experience than I was then. But I, I was teaching within six, seven months. I was teaching seven guys that had some sort of status and I wasn't even teaching three members. Oh, wow. Look at that, man. Like it was like, I had no, like it was when I got into this, I wasn't saying, Oh, I want to like teach on tour. I was just saying like, Hey, I was still trying to figure out how I was going to transition out of, you know, the head professional, you know, side and going into the teaching professional side. And because I was looking at it as like, Hey, I'm going to have to leave this job and all that. And then what happened that happens, it ends up being him uh, that people already know with at the club and everything. And then the, all these other guys, because they're like, gosh, you know, we were, we were at Q school finals walking down the fairway. I was walking and a guy who was a U.S. amateur champion looked over at him. And he goes, weren't you caddying earlier this year? Wow. And so it gave me clout that I really didn't deserve at that time. And so there were a lot of players that came like flooding in immediately. And like I said, I wasn't even teaching members at that point, really. You know, I was still doing my other job and really hadn't developed a plan. Like I said, I was not prepared whatsoever. But the club loved it. No, imagine, that, imagine. And that GM that I told you that got me when I was 16 years old, you know, he basically told me, he said, look, you're so good at your job. You can get th that job done in 10 hours a week. And he said, I don't care if you teach the other 40. Nice. And man. so that's what I did. So I kept my position. I didn't really change anything. It allowed me to elevate my assistants up into a, a, a role where, um, you know, I just gave them a little bit more responsibility. And I said, hey, you know, this is going to be good because when I recommend you for a job that you're going to want to go and take, I'm going to, I'm not going to have to sit here and sort of, you know, meander around and say, yeah, you know, he's done this. I'm going to literally sit there and say, Hey, you know, y'all know how much I teach now. And the guys that I'm teaching, this is who's doing the work the guy. that I used to, you know? And so it, it allowed them. So there was three guys that came up through that. So it was just, it was, it was a groundswell for, for everything. And, um, so Sean, great. is, is, uh, is Butch Harmon the most famous instructor of all time? I think he is. Yeah. Yeah. He, I've never had a personal conversation with him, but I really feel like he and I are very similar. Um, like I understand track man. And if you wanted to give me a test, I can pass it, but I don't live by that. Like, everybody's different. The, the numbers, you know, instead of saying like, oh, you really need to be like here, you need to be there. Like it's different for every single person. And it's not even within certain screens of the way people move, it's not cookie cutter. You know, I, the way I really approach golf is we, all of us, we are intricately delicate, put together human beings. And nothing in our life is going to have an easy answer and, and a cut and dry answer. I, I just, we're all so different. 
every Absolutely. single person is so different, you know? And so I teach everyone just differently. And I, I don't even in, in, you know, a lot of times people, you know, say things about Butch or, or things that I've just sort of heard. It's like, Oh, you know, he doesn't really know all that much. It's like, well, you know, I believe his brain sees what other people have to calculate. Right. And he can articulate what's actually going on, but he sees it. And, and a lot of mine is that way too, but it's also because I'm such a visual person, you know? And so um, I also think, you know, for me with my students, you know, if you were to ask them, I would probably think, and I've never asked them, but I would probably think if you ask them what, what is the greatest part of your coaching relationship with Sean, I would think most of them would probably say the emotional, um, the, the emotional, you know, balance and what, what we talk about, not necessarily dissecting the swing and all that like that's that's part of it and you have to get that right but I think most of them would tell you that yeah that was like you know we did that and and we got that but but like that's not what really like set me apart you know and set them apart and help them you know really succeed Sean I think that's everything man I think we value or people that don't know value so much the what's on paper versus that emotional thing of adjusting of almost being a therapist of almost <laughs> being you know a, a best friend that's not going to judge of almost being hard and across the board whether you're a hairstylist whether you're uh, whatever you own a restaurant whatever it is that relationship stuff man i there was a book i read I don't read too much. I'm not a smart guy like you. you use a lot of big words. I'm not, I'm, I don't come from that. I don't read either. <laughs> it sounds like you do, man. It sounds like you do. But I, I don't, but I read a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, right? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it talked about that in like the early 1900s, how the Jeff Bezos of that time was Andrew Carnegie. And being a steel magnet and this whole thing. And we're talking about, they say that if he was around what the wealth he had at this time, he'd be like, like a trillionaire. That's how crazy it was. And he hired Charles Schwab to run his steel mill. And he paid Charles Schwab a million dollar salary a year, which was just crazy. Like when you were crushing it, if you were making 50,000. This dude was like a million dollars and they interviewed Charles Schwab and they go, dude, you must be like the steel genius of all time to be in this position. He goes, he goes, I'm going to be honest with you. I know nothing about steel, but I know people. Yeah. And that's the most. And when I speak in schools, I speak in university, we're talking about Oregon state to Duke and whatever. I always say that if we could eliminate algebra, we don't use algebra and put human one-on-one communication skills. Like this world and this just this country alone would make such an incredible shift. Mm -hmm. Do you think about that or no? Oh yeah, I agree a hundred percent. You know, and the, and the thing about it is, is that you know, people ask me all the time. They're like, you know, like some of my 
kids will say, you know, like, how did, how did you get into this? And I would just say like, and I truly believe this, you know, everybody, you know, no matter what you're doing, you know, and like I said, it, for me, I, I had not even thought this far yet, you know, and it happened to me. And, and the reason that it did is why I feel so strongly in, in about what I'm about to say is that I really believe that to really be an effective coach at a super high level, it's a calling. It's, it's a gift. Like you, you, the gift has to be there because I didn't, as much as I educated myself, that was just my ticket to get into the dance, you know, what determined on how fun I was going to have and how pretty a girl I got to go with was not anything I did. It was, it, it was, it was what God gave me because right. I was two on the Enneagram, if you're familiar with that. And so what makes me great in the reason that I do what I do, you know, within my church structure, which, which that's a very, I mean, if you think about it, it's, I mean, it's almost like being at a shelter, you know, in, in public spaces, Right. But that is what separates And like, no one can learn that you're either like, I can tell you probably have some of that in you as well. I don't know if you've ever done the Enneagram test or it's, it's a number two is a helper. Right. 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 Well, let me tell you something. Look how funny this is. So we're kind of the same age. So you might relate to this. You ever see Lord of the Rings? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Same thing. Like, because we're talking about Jedi stuff here, right? If the only way they can explain this to us, this is Jedi stuff, right? But I say Lord of the Rings because my whole life, because of my upbringing, I never, I never popped the way I felt I should. Like, here's this guy who's 6'2", had this swag about him, whatever. But my dad just enslaved me. And I could never release what I wanted to release, right? So the minute I was able to escape him and I moved to J-Lo, puts me on a TV show here in Miami. I start acting. I go, that's it. I'm going to go to Los Angeles. I go to Los Angeles. I live in a car for six months. I don't know a single person. But I go, listen, I'm going to figure this out or I'm going to be the first Cuban that dies in the Hollywood Hills trying to figure <laughs> this out, Sean. Dude, I do that. And... The irony is, and I'm going to get to the Lord of the Rings things part in a second. So my whole life, I'm running away from baseball because baseball just destroyed me. It, it just, it, uh, it sabotaged my whole upbringing and it sabotaged my relationship with my dad and everybody. But when I get to Los Angeles and I'm literally homeless for six months, I realize why people go crazy because I honestly thought that I was, my strength is I'm a guy who's for some crazy reason, I've never drank and I've never done drugs. Later, I kind of thought that it was subconsciously because my dad drank a lot. So maybe that's why I figured out he had problems. So I never did that, but I would peacock and I would show off with the women I would get. That was my way of, of, of fitting in, in society. I mean, oh, watch the cool guy, watch what I can do. Right. So I honestly thought I was going to go to Los Angeles I never really worked because, you know, when you're a baseball player full time, you're not doing anything else but just baseball. So I was like, no, don't worry. I'll find some chick there. I'll stay with her and I'll move from girl to girl to I'll figure it out. Right. But what I didn't plan, Sean, was I became so paranoid that they would steal all my stuff. And I had this 
Toyota Corolla that I had all my stuff in. And I didn't know that January in Los Angeles would be cold because I thought it was sunny California, which is what <laughs> I saw on TV and stuff. And when it was 40 degrees in that Hollywood Hills, it was freezing, man. And I was so almost like shell-shocked that I didn't even think of going. And I had like, I had like 500 bucks, 600 bucks. I didn't even think of going like to a Walmart and buying like a big blanket or something. So I just took that cold in religiously every single day. And there was no iPhone there was no YouTube. I couldn't. And let me talk to a guy like Sean and get advice. And stuff. It was literally my mindset. So I developed this mindset of, I know I'm destined for something special because I've already put myself in a special place. Nobody does this. That doesn't really have to do this. So I started doing that, right? Mistake that I made. And I'm going to go to Lord of the Rings, man. I want to get your opinion on this. I've lived my whole life till I became 31 years old, wanting to be Aragon. Aragon is the king. He's the guy. He's the good looking guy. He gets the girl. This is the whole thing, right? So I've hacked my life up until I was 31 to be Aragon. When I get to Los Angeles and my first, I had paid for this lesson with this acting coach who had a piece of paper. And when the piece of paper that my agent that I got recommended him, he said, when Helen Hunt won her Academy Award for as good as it gets, she thanked him. So this guy has to be good. So I signed up for the class. And when I, it's the first person I had spoken to in six months, I get to the class and the guy's wearing a retro Houston Astros baseball jacket. I go, this is a sign. Does a baseball analogy, Sean. I raise my hand. I go, you're absolutely right. I used to play baseball, this whole thing. And he took me in. Him, his wife is four, snow dogs, whatever. I go, listen, I just... I want to stay humble. I slept in this driveway. I go, let, let me at least have my car parked in your driveway. And I did that. And then I moved. And then eventually I became a celebrity baseball instructor in Beverly Hills. So here's a kid that grew up very entry level, blue collar, took the yellow bus in public school. I almost thought that money was the reason why my dad was unhappy. So now I'm in Beverly Hills in multi, multi-million dollar homes, working with their kids and, and understanding that I have a gift with kids and with parents of successful people to be brutally, positively honest in favor for them and for their kid. So in the Lord of the Rings reference, I realized, wait a minute, I'm not, uh, I'm not Aragon. I'm Gandalf, right? And the last thing, and I want to get your opinion on this, and this is why I wanted to get into your faith and stuff like that. Gandalf's strength are very unique because especially when he becomes Gandalf the White, which is like now you, you can't get any better than him, right? He's limited to when, look how crazy this is. He's limited, Sean, to when he can use his powers. And he can only use his powers to help others. Mm-hmm. So look how crazy that is, right? That I associated with this guy. And I'm like, oh, that's me. I became him at 31 when I spent six years as a successful Beverly Hills, Hollywood, worked with the top celebrities with their kids. Then I moved to Las Vegas. So I have a 702 number. I moved to Las Vegas and I work at a nightclub called Hyde and the Bellagio. I live at the Aria Hotel. The first time I ever played golf, okay, was in the Michael Jordan Classic 
at Shadow Creek. My foursome, I had never seen golf before, right? My foursome was me, MJ, uh, Jerry Rice, Ken Griffey Jr., okay? <laughs> and I'm there because my boss at the time was really good friends with, with Michael, and I'm watching that, and I was like, oh, my God. Coincidentally, look at this coincidence. Wayne Gretzky had his foundation. The one week that he would do his foundation, he would do it at the Bellagio at my nightclub. His wife is a big Bellagio gambler, so that's why they did it there. Paulina, his daughter at the time, starts dating DJ. So DJ was there all the time. And then I started to get these relationships with guys like Martin Keimer that would come, Scott Pearson, uh, Sabo, Rory Sabatini, all these people. I nothing to do with golf, but this thing. And then I become a member of TPC Summerlin, where the Shriners used to be the Justin Timberlake Shriner and stuff, right? To get that to what I do now is like, I could talk to you all day for what I do now. I'm literally the kid whisperer. And I talk to Sean. That's why you're important. It's so important to me to talk to. I talk to two versions of myself. When I work and when I speak and when I help, I talk to my dad speaking, working with me as a kid. So if, if I could have, if my dad could have had me helping me teach me, it would have been game over. And then I speak to the 20, 30 year old version of myself that was literally lost with like, I have this Gandalf thing in me, but I didn't know how to put it together, man. I want to hear about your faith. I don't know. It took long to get here, but I want to hear about your faith. How do you, who started that in you? How important that is you? in you and how do you follow the signs that the man upstairs gives you so so i always joke so i was going to church nine months before i was born so, <laughs> Crazy. so my, my parents grew up in church um you know both sides of our family um but it was very oh, hang on a second um it was very systematic and so I grew up in that and you know I was so at 12 years old I went through a discipleship class you know got saved you know walked up front did all that got baptized the next week you know went through the whole process I and mean, it was like a six-week thing so it wasn't you know just you know it wasn't emotional they didn't want it to be that so th that part of it was good but um, I became very performance-based and no one did that to me. It just, it, it's, it's the way that my personality is, but it's because I didn't really get the relationship, you know, and the biggest thing in faith to me, and this is what I talk about in, in what I do in Starting Point is, is really understanding the Trinity changes everything because one of the things that you may have, have suffered with at some point, maybe in your faith journey is all of our first impression of God is through our earthly father. And if that is strained, it will put a strain on seeing that. And so what a lot of people see, and this is just where things get a little muddied doesn't mean they, you know, they go off the reservation and become an atheist or anything like that. I mean, some people do, but what happens is a lot of people see 
God as a punisher and see Jesus as the savior. And it's like Jesus came to save me from God because God doesn't do anything but beat me and tell me I'm bad and tell me everything I've done wrong. But until you understand that they're all the exact same person and really intake that in, that can get very cloudy and it can really stunt, you know, spiritual growth. And that's what happened in me until, you know, 2004. And so it was just, I began going to a church that's called North Point Community Church. Andy Stanley is the lead pastor. Um, it's There's 60-something campuses all over the world in the United States. And it's just very relational. And so that being inside of me and the change that that, that, that came with, and I don't believe in coincidences. So I believe that, you know, our life is a hallway and this is, I do Bible studies for the kids that I teach as well. It's, you know, if they want, I just say, Hey, I'm doing it today. You can show up if you want to, you know, obviously it's nothing that, you know, anybody ever wants to mandate anymore, but, you know, I, I, I offer that because I want them to see me in two separate lights because that way, when I speak into it, I want them to know where that's coming from. Cause like you said, you know, when I'm in my bay or on the golf course, you know, I'm, I've got that mode, but then that same mode in me is going to, is going to maybe call them out or step alongside of them when something happens from an emotional standpoint, you know, to, you know, to give them the emotional intelligence they need, you know, at that time to get through it. So all of that framed me because that was all happening leading up to this happening. And then it gave me, you know, a rock solid conviction of knowing that, you know, this is what you're, this is your calling. Like, this is what you are supposed to do. Like you're supposed to help people. Golf is just what it is. I, I mean, I firmly believe if my mom would have said, you know, hey, I don't care race. I would have raced, and I would be doing what I'm doing right now on at a, in a post race career. You know, from that standpoint. So I don't really think the sport matters, and it's just golf ended up being the path that that right. God had planned out for me. And and so, you know, it all of that formulated the way that I interact, you know, with my students. Um, and it, you know, from a faith standpoint, it's, I'm a very, I think the other thing is too. So you were talking about your experiences growing up here is, here is where I bridge. Cause, because I get asked this a lot. They're like, what, what do you think is your greatest attribute? And I said, well, the thing that makes that where my church would and I could tell you my background. I'll just I'll just say this real quick. I had about a seven year period in my life where I went and I was still active in church and I was still playing the game because back then it was a game to me. I, I needed to perform to get God to like me to do things right. that were going to be good for me. I didn't really at that time believe in this. And, and I told you my relationship with my dad. So that didn't come from my dad. I, I somehow picked that up on my own in my own personality. 
but it was like, you know, I need to do well for God to get him to like me to do what I want him to do. There was no following in there whatsoever. It was like, Hey, I've got an idea and I need you, you to come and help me do it. To sponsor me so I could get it done. Yeah. And then, so when, when, when life falls apart, like it always does. And for me, that was around 24, 25 years old from that way of thinking, I turned and went the other direction because I didn't really have a relationship. It was just all, you know, a means to an end for me. So I went the opposite direction for about six years. And so I tell those stories in those circles. I tell those stories in the high school circles of the kids that I teach. And we all go into a room and I tell them, Hey, this stays in this room, but you need to know like what, where I really come from. And I want you to hopefully take something from it and you don't ever go down that road. And, and this is why you're not going to go down that road because it's all about the relationship. And then, so obviously all of the, the tour players I have um, and many tour and collegiate players, you know, they all know that. And I speak into that. And then, so, with them knowing that about me and knowing that I'm not coming from a place of judgment, that I'm coming from a place of love, it just like completely transforms, you know, the relationship because I, there are times where I'm going to really get on them, you know, and I've had some, I've had two relationships that fractured and then, and then a time later they both came back. Wow. Wow. Because they told me, said, both of them said this, uh, one of them was, so a girl I teach that just made it through, uh, she finished fifth at second stage of LPGAQ school. And so she'll be going to finals and hopefully we'll be able to get on the tour. So she's got full semester status now and then hopefully we'll get full LPGA. Um, she went to another instructor and when, when we had sort of got a little afraid and he's a, he's a great instructor, but she came back and she said, y'all basically are doing, you want me to do the same thing. And she goes, I was just stubborn and didn't listen. And she said, but your personal relationship with me is why I'm back here. And that's what I need. You know, she says the X's and O's is it's they're fine but I need this, you know, and not every player is like that. So I think of that the players that gravitate towards me are the ones that really, that really want that emotional intelligence and want someone who's going to sit there, you know, and do that. But, you know, where, where I believe that it really separates, and this is why I believe it's a calling and a gift and that no one can just, take what you and I are saying here today and write it down and say, Oh, I'm going to go and do that because of course. <laughs> you're not gifted to do it. It's never, there's going to be zero fruit. One of the best quotes that I love is, is this, is that God is always with us. So he's always with us. So even when we go on our own little journeys that we want to go on, he's always with us, but you know why he doesn't really show up is because we won't let him do anything. Yeah, makes sense. That's not his agenda. So he just sits there. He doesn't do anything because that's he's like, no, 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 no. You're not supposed to go over here. So one of the things that I talk with all of my players with in the very, very beginning 
because I get involved in all of my, in my player's life. Like I get in the kitchen, you know, because I really believe that if, if you aren't healthy in every area, you can't be healthy on the golf course and you can't play your best. No, it'll break down at some point. At some point it'll break down. So I go into that early and I tell them, I said, look, this is the way that, that, that we view this life is a hallway. And as we're going down this hallway, there's closed doors and there's open doors. And I tell them, I said, every bad mistake I ever made was I went over to a closed door and I picked the lock and I went in when the open door was right over there and every bad mistake I made. And so I'll tell you really quick. No, tell me, talk to me. So let me tell you a, a, a crazy cool uh, God story about, so this is the, this is the aerial view of, of the kingdom where I work. So I had three different courses and this was in 2017 that were, had reached out to me and I won't even go into all of it, but there were three different courses that were sort of like trying to court me Well, they were all at different facets of where they were in the process. And none of them were like in, in some of them were on a one, like, Hey, we want you in like a year. Cause we have to build what you need or, or two years or whatever it is. So I'd been bringing my really good players that were, that were playing TaylorMade and my staff players who some of them were playing TaylorMade as well. I'd been coming down here with them, you know, helping the fitters fit them, you know, giving them information, which helps the fitter, you know, more and all that. So that's how I had the, the relationship here. And so the, the head guy came over one day and goes, Hey, um, we want to hire you down here. And I was like, okay. And I'm like, well, Hey, I'm talking to these others. And so long right. story short, that, that was in October. And so all of this continues to, to move forward. And they were not, they were not going to hire me for what, like, so this guy wanted me to come in you know, and they were going to hire the position I'm in now. Well, he was trying to get me into there. Well, they were already down the road with these other two candidates and really didn't want to go in and insert me. So anyway, they ended up hiring one of the other guys and then he convinced that guy to hire me and so, or to try to hire me. So in the process of all this, you know, I'm going back and forth. Well, it wasn't that part. So I was literally going to take a $50,000 pay cut to come here. Now that would have only been really in the first year because then I could have built everything up and right. about the same, but I was looking for more, not because I was all about money, but I just wanted the opportunity to be there. Absolutely. It got down to brass tacks and they called me and said, look, you have to make a decision. And I said, okay. And it was a Tuesday. I said, can you give me to Friday? And they said, we'll give you to Friday. I said, on Friday, I will make a 100% ironclad decision. So I called and talked to the other two places and they were, you know, they were in, okay, well, we got the board of directors. And then, so I sat there and I, I was like, I was praying and I said, God, like, this, like I can stay where I'm at. Like I can stay there and make the money that I'm making now. And these other two opportunities are not going anywhere. Like, why do you keep leading me? You have got your hand 
on the door closed and you've got this, this kingdom door over here is open and it makes no sense whatsoever to me. And I said, you got to help me. And so we got down to brass tacks. And I mean, I'm talking about, this is like sweating. Like I went to bed that Thursday night and I said, I can't make heads or tails of it. When I wake up tomorrow morning at eight o'clock, I'm going to pick up my phone and I'm going to call them. And you have got to give me peace in my heart one way or the other on what I should do. And if you give me peace, I'll call them and tell them I'm taking it. And if you don't, I'm going to call them and tell them, no, thank you. I'm going to stay where I'm at and see what materializes out of the other two. I woke up <laughs> the next morning, peace like a river. I called them and I said, I'll take the job. I was here five weeks and the guy they had hired didn't really like it. And he took me to dinner and I didn't know this. He just asked me if I wanted to go to dinner one night. I'd been here five weeks. We went to dinner. We had not even, the waitress had not even brought us our drinks yet. And he looked across the table at me and he goes, I've been waiting on you to get here so I can leave. And I'm going to recommend you take over my position. Look how crazy that is, man. <laughs> that is awesome. And I literally just looked up. You know, that is I'm, awesome. And like nothing that is that I'm in right now would exist if I would have not followed that. And I give that example all the time. Um, it's I'll tell you a super quick story, too. So there was a college girl that was in one of my starting point classes at church that had a somewhat similar situation. And I had told that um, story like it's an eight week program. And I mm -hmm. told that story like two weeks in. So we go all the way through the eight weeks and she graduates and all that. And about four months later, I get an email and she emails me and basically says, I was in a situation very, very similar to you. And against all odds in my mind, I went with that. And she goes, it wasn't the exact same situation. And she said, but two months later, she said something I never, ever could have dreamed. I met a client through the business that I was in and literally got the job that I expected to have 20 years from now. Wow. She said, had I never taken that, I never would have met him. That is crazy, man. That is awesome. You know, so um, it's th those are the things that uh, I tell people all the time, they're like, you know, so I feel like that same, that same relationship is what allows me, my players that really want that, they look to me for both sides. They look to me for instruction and they look to me for emotional intelligence. That makes sense, dude. Sean, are you, you have a family, single, married? I'm, What's your story? I'm single. All right. How's the scene? Oh, I was married, but I don't have any kids. All right. Uh, so do you want to have kids one day? I do. If it's in the cards, it is in the cards. You know, huh? I mean, I'm 47. So, you know, I, I, I haven't written it off. I've just sort of, you know, put it in that, that realm of. Yeah, dude. If, if, hey, if that's the door that's open, I'll, I'll walk in it. I, I've learned I'm not picking any more locks. That is, that is smart, man. That is smart. I, I didn't want to get married ever. I wanted to be like Oprah and have everybody's kids be my kids and then stop that. 
And I actually, I left, I wouldn't have become or became coach HP if it wasn't for my wife, because I was doing phenomenal in Las Vegas. I threw, we went to high school together. I never spoke to her, but I saw her. I was the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. And I don't know how many years later, I threw her best friend's bachelorette party in Las Vegas at my club. And I moved back home to Miami, a, a place that I had lost. And I never wanted to come back to Miami. And I started this journey with social media and YouTube and Instagram and sharing my story and stuff like that. So I had my daughter when I was 37, 38. I had my son now when I was 41, you know? So it's interesting, man. Like I tell people all this stuff's very interesting and I'm, I'm lucky I'm in a place now where I get about a thousand DMs a week. Everything from coach, what bat should I use? What glove should I use? What club should I use? Stuff like that to coach my son Googled how to commit suicide and what should I do? You know, like very serious stuff and everything across the board, man. And I'm grateful that I'm in a position where at least I can talk, you know, and, and I think that's, that's fortunate, dude. I think that's real fortunate. Sean, what's your favorite type of music? Uh, country. Who's your favorite country person? Um, if I had to say the entire catalog, Jason Aldean. Jason Aldean. Yeah. I got a great Jason Aldean story. I'll tell you in private. Um, <laughs> favorite Jason Aldean song. Oh, wow. Um, I would probably say, uh, the truth, the truth. No, I, I can say, I've said this story before. I'm going to say it to you. So I worked at Hyde in the Bellagio. I'm literally, so my, like I told you, my thing was women. So when I got to Vegas, people that really knew me, and I was around really successful people in Los Angeles, they go, listen to me. You're going to do very, very well in Las Vegas. You're going to crush it, man. If you can do just do one thing, don't hook up with the servers in the nightclub. You're going to have very beautiful women. They're going to throw themselves at you. If you can avoid that. And I'll never forget. I was shredded. I was ripped. I was in such good shape, Sean. And I'm sitting with this guy who big financial guy, Indian dude, real cool. And I'm sitting with him. And I looked like the part I'm here. I'll shred it. I like, be like the cool guy. And he goes like to me, he goes, listen, bro, you see this little cool look you got going on, all this stuff. As you're going to do great. You're going to have all the girls, whatever, whatever, but no one's going to take you seriously. So if I were you, what I would do is I would wear a suit and tie and look more official. And that way the people, when you're coming up, are going to help you versus block you. And you get stuck in this world that a lot of players, a lot of guys that get so I took his advice seriously and I put on a suit and tie and every day for a year, I put on a suit and tie. Positive momentum took me to a year and a half, Sean. I worked every single day for a year and a half. I showed up at the, at the club because it was a day during the day. It was a, a lounge. Mm -hmm. So as I did that, one of our servers, Brittany Kerr, Brittany Kerr, girl from North Carolina, she came and she was used to be a, a Bobcat cheerleader. And she immediately, blonde, got a lot of attention. People loved her, whatever. But I noticed after a certain time, she started to look real thin. You know, she started to look real skinny. I was like, wow, look at Brittany, real skinny. So we're at the EDR one night. It was a Friday night. EDR is the employee dining room, which all the employees would eat after when you go home. And I'm sitting there eating. And I had become almost like the brother to all the girls. Yeah. And they all had, and so I wasn't a creeper. They had a lot of 
a trust in me. And I was a little older, you know? And she was, I think, 24 at the time. I go, Brittany Kerr, what's going on, Brittany Kerr? Talk to me. You look sad. She's like, Hector, I have this situation, man. I have this guy that I've been seeing, that I'm in love with, I really like. He's in Tennessee, I think Nashville. But he's, I don't know if he was married or he's in a situation. And I'm in the bubble. He, he hasn't committed to me. And I'm doing really good in Vegas. And, you know, servers in Vegas that are girls make really good money. Mm-hmm. And I can't leave this nightclub yet because, and like as clear as it's today is Thursday, I told him, I told her, Sean, I go, this is what I think you should do. They should call a guy up and talk to him and be super honest and go, here's my situation. I have a tremendous job here in Vegas. I love you. I think you love me, but I can't leave here if you're not going to take me seriously. So I think what we should do is if you really want me, we'll get married and I'll leave everything I'm doing here because this is going to change my life. And I can't come back to these situations because it is so hard because those jobs are such in demand. Mm-hmm. You believe she did it. She convinced the guy and she moved to with him. And the guy's Jason Aldean. That crazy. Yeah. It's his oh, wife yeah. right now. Brittany's his wife. She yep. married him. Wow. I think, I think they have like two kids or something, whatever. So yeah, Mm-hmm. That is crazy, dude. So, Jason Aldean, the truth. Sean, I think I could talk to you forever, bro. Yeah, before I know. It's been I, great. Before I let <laughs> you go, man, any questions for me, man? Anything I can help you with? I mean, one thing I would like to know. So, wh- what do you what's, – what's your day look like, typically? I'm so, just curious. So, here's my situation right now in where I'm at. And how I got into, let's say, this golf hybrid thing that I'm kind of doing now, right? So I had this show. I started this show during the pandemic. A lot of, I can tell you stories. Me and you could start a show called Picking Locks to the Door that God doesn't want you to go through. Okay? (laughs) Starting from things like, dude, my first guest on my show was great person erica nardini the ceo of barstool sports you heard of barstool mm-hmm. okay i'm literally there i have her as my guest this is during i started the show during the pandemic to do something to help people yeah. and then i go to new york i'm on her podcast she literally sits there and goes to me you have a special talent you can't be put in a box i think you deserve a show i think i gotta get you in front of series I heard radio and, and I want to get you in front of Dave. Who's, who's the guy? I go, perfect. I left there. Nothing ever happened after that. So I go to myself, I go, that has to be the man upstairs saying now. Yeah. You're picking locks here, bro. That might be good for you. It might look sexy, whatever. Nah, bro. Not you. I'm not taking down that route. Right. So that's a story of my life. As I started the show, but with extremely successful people, Sean. So it gets a little scary, you know, and when you sit in front of one-on-one with Tiger Woods and Tiger tells you, Sean, you're my guy. I'm dropping whoever I have. Me and you're going to bring me back to the promised land, whatever, whatever. And then he never calls you. Oh, yeah. So that's the story of my life with two kids and a beautiful wife. So I adore. So, So I was doing that. I signed with, like I have the gloves right here. So I'm the first influencer person to sign with Rawlings. So I have like my custom logo on the gloves, oh, awesome. stuff like that. So I, I do that. 
had a deal with New Balance too. I did that. And I had always told myself, I don't like, I don't like a lot the baseball world for a lot of reasons, a lot of personal reasons, a lot of reasons. I don't like it a lot in Miami because us, the, especially the Latin people that get here, it, it's the parents are not as educated. It's so intense. They want to kill the umpire. It's like the worst thing in the world. And I don't, I just don't like the environment. Yeah. It brings out the worst in people. And I go, God, man, I want to get into the golf world. I would love to get into the golf world. Sean, one of the, all of a sudden, a kid that I used to work with when he was five years old is now one of the best golfers. Now he's nine and he's one of the best golfers in the country. He's at Worlds. He's doing good. So I started to help him. I get a call. There's an island here in, have you heard of an island called Fisher Island? Yes. Mm -hmm. So Fisher Island is the most expensive zip code in the country. There was a gentleman that I worked with three years ago with his kid. This guy is the main builder in Fisher Island. Okay. They're doing now a billion dollar thing. He reaches out to me because his friend is a great guy named Pepe Gomez, who happens to be A-Rod's best friend. <laughs> and I had worked with his kid and he super religious guy. He put me through something called Emmaus. You ever heard of Emmaus? Yeah, walk the Emmaus. I did that, right? And I only would have done it for him. This is a crazy, anybody else? I said, no, nah, man, but I did that, right? And he reached out to me and said, look, you should reach out to HP again because he's doing tremendous stuff with golf. And I got his son now. So for probably the last two months, Sean, from literally four o'clock-ish to like about seven, every day now I'm with this kid or his brother in a golf capacity now. That is my job. That's how I connect with Zach because this other kid has Zach as his instructor, who mm. is the guy down here. Yeah. So I connect with Zach and now lo and behold, I'm heavy now in the golf world, just with this guy who has a kid who's 11 years old, has his trials as any kid of that magnitude. The dad is very foot on the ground, Cuban guy, raised by himself dad died when he was young ex-army ranger who's become super self-made super successful a little bit older so he brings me on to dude help my child yeah with positivity with mindset i got two of them i got an 11 year old and i got a seven year old help me so sean during the day i'm absolutely free to do stuff like this mm -hmm. build relationships do stuff work on my golf game if i want work on baseball stuff for answer calls football. I literally have a, a text today that I, that I'm going to have on my show, a dad of the number two prospect in the country. Now, a cornerback of a LSU, you know? So it's literally across all realms of what I'm doing. Last time I was in Atlanta, I was in a, there's a place called, Oh, it, it has a, it's, it's a Jewish name that's a retreat, a trail that is very famous that people go through. It's, it's, it's like an hour or so from Atlanta. And my buddy, you know, Jesse Itzler is mm -mm. Jesse owns the Atlanta Hawks. One of the owners, of the Atlanta Hawks Okay. that his wife owns, uh, Spanx, Sarah Blakely. Yeah. 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 So Jesse buddy of mine, I spoke 
at his event. He has a company of BYLR Radio. BYLR can build your life resume. Great guy. I spoke there and I was there. So literally my days are open for me to do whatever I want. And what attracts me a lot with what you do is, is that I am fascinated by golf. I'm fascinated by it, but I never play it in my head. I'm playing golf at some capacity at some place, but I rarely play it except now that I'm playing it with kids. I would love to get more involved in what I do, because I'm not going to teach you how to chip. I'm not a chip, but I'm going to teach you how to understand vulnerability, how to understand adversity, how to understand a plan. And that it's perfectly normal that when things go wrong to think the plan sucks, life sucks, the club sucks, the instructor sucks, whatever, but that everything in life is momentary. Everything mm. is momentary. And baseball, which you played different from golf, golf, you got to be on because it's one thing to the other, to the other, to the other, right? Baseball is a mental torture chamber because if I have a horrible first at bat, I can't go, Sean, do me a favor, dude. I fell asleep my first at bat, bro. Can I get yours? And then we'll trade at the end and I'll give you two more. Yeah. You literally got to wait nine other players, eight other players to hit again. Three outs, three outs, three outs, three outs. You can't score on defense. Mm -hmm. So it's all this, man. And that's yeah. like, so, so that's it, dude. I, and we'll talk a little more now when we're done, but I want to find a way also to bring more awareness to what you do. If you want it, I don't know if you want it, I think a guy like you is so beneficial more. And if I can help you with your social media stuff to get you more out there, to if maybe that's the route you want to take too, I want to help you with that. But dude, I'm, I'm leading the charge. You know what I'm saying? You know what's so funny? So I don't have social media. I know. I figured, I figured, <laughs> I figured. And I, even as I saw Zach tag you guys and stuff, I saw it and like, there's so much potential here, but. That's, yeah. that's the thing. So they, so they run, we, we have someone that runs our social media apartment. So it's so funny. So my girlfriend is like on me about, she goes, just let me run it for you. She We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. Oh, we're going to talk about that. I'm going to get you off. Here. We're going to talk about that. Yeah. All right. So they can't find you anywhere, Sean, because you're nowhere to be found. Right. But this kingdom place, I'm going to tag it. You're the guy. That's where people want the best. Obviously, TaylorMade's crushing it. That's where you're at. I think we got to do this again to even talk about this part of your life because we didn't even get to that. Yeah, absolutely. But, but the kingdom, I'll put everything down, dude. Any last words before the people say, buddy? The last thing I would say is when we're talking about picking locks and all that, sort of my uh, mantra, and this is what you said you figured out as well, is that you know God can shut doors that nobody else can open, and he can open doors that nobody else can shut. The man. All right, dude, hold on. Don't go anywhere. I'm going to stop the recording now, but I still want you to talk. Hold on. Hold on. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 